This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Meanwhile, in an abandoned warehouse. to Meanwhile in an Abandoned Warehouse. My name's Owen Kelly. This episode is the second in a short series, following on from last month's episode, which I called Convivial Mechanics, and I realised later, never fully explained what that term meant. This episode, the second in three, is called Convivial Tools. Now, in the February newsletter, I included a short quiz to ask people to tell me what digital tools they use in a number of key areas. We got a heartening number of responses to this, and the responses, while not startling, did contain some interesting insights. Most people, it appears, make use of the tools that Google provide in one way or another. And in fact, more of the respondents seem to use Google Docs then use a desktop solution, a traditional desktop solution, like Microsoft Office or LibreOffice. So it appears that the move from desktop to online continues. Most people use Dropbox as their storage solution, their preferred storage solution. Many more than use, or many more than admitted to using OneDrive or solutions like that. Similarly, More people prefer Zoom than prefer Teams. Although a number of you noted that much of the time you have to use whatever the other person wants to use. That is to say, somebody demands a video meeting and then sends you an invitation. And you find that much though you'd prefer to meet in Zoom, the invitations to a Teams meeting, you grit your teeth and have that. Now that leads to the most interesting aspect of this. The difference between home and work and the amount of choice people have. A number of people said, I use X at work, but Y at home, giving the clear implication that what they use at work is what they're told to use at work or forced to use at work or whatever, and that given the choice, they would stick with the service they use at home. One person who responded put this more strongly and said it more explicitly. They said, I use Dropbox for sharing, but I keep all my original data on a small external portable hard disk, backed up daily onto another desktop hard disk. So there's actually very little stored on my computer. This means that I can still have access to my data when I'm working away, but it also protects me from any problems with the computer including interference from my employer. Because in order to be able to use my device from home, I, like all members of staff, have to agree to let the employer delete data or freeze the computer if they think it's been compromised. So this goes straight to the heart of what I want to discuss today. Tools you can trust. Now, tools you can trust sounds like a simple idea, 
but we're going to need to decide at the beginning what we mean by trust and who we mean by you. Now, the title of this episode, Convivial Tools, comes from a book by Ivan Illich, Tools for Conviviality. I've looked at that book last year in the series called Meanwhile in an Abandoned Bookshelf. And there I read great chunks of Tools for Conviviality while providing a commentary. I don't propose to go through that process again here. Instead, in the notes, the episode notes for this episode, I shall make a clear link to the episode in which I do read great chunks of Tools for Conviviality, so that if you want to, you can go back and listen to that there. But what I do want to say now is that Illich defines what he sees as a primary problem. Ivan Illich believed that advancement in mechanical mass and industrial production had removed from people their ability to free use of their natural abilities. This development had come at the expense of an individual's capacity to connect with themselves and others, leading to what he saw as a deterioration in the fabric of community. Illich argued that people do not just need the ability to obtain things, they also need the ability to make the things that surround them. By influencing the tools and processes of production, people are then able to shape the objects, technology, systems, according to their tastes and needs. Illich believed that people could only then put these things to use in caring for and about other people. So what did he mean by convivial tools? Illich defined conviviality as a process that stood in opposition to industrial production. The conditions of conviviality are created through bringing together an individual's independence and their innate creativity. He said, and I quote, I consider conviviality to be individual freedom realized in personal interdependence and as such an intrinsic ethical value. I believe that in any society, as conviviality is reduced below a certain level, no amount of industrial productivity can effectively satisfy the needs it creates amongst society's members. Tools then become convivial when they allow people to make and learn things in a personalised way that is in alignment with their own interests and abilities. Such tools might include physical objects such as hammers, paintbrushes and scissors. But it might also include cognitive tools such as language, including specialised language, and knowledge of institutional and social systems. Skills can be learned in such a way that they support the, further support the use of convivial tools, giving individuals the ability to express meaning through the act of making. Illich says, to the, to the degree that a person masters their tools, they can invest the world with their meaning. To the degree that they are mastered by their tools, the shape of the tool determines their own self-image. Now, Tools for Conviviality doesn't dismiss industrial production. 
It doesn't say it's a bad thing by definition. Rather, it advocates for a balance between what people can do for and by themselves, either individually or in groups, and what society can do for them. Illich warns that if industrial production continues to dominate as a mode of production, this will come at the expense of people's creative capacities, which they will begin to lose, and then begin to fail to recognise they ever had. Illich argues for a balance to be identified between industrial development and personalised production. He argues we should continually examine this balance, and to do so he constructed an analytical framework that identified the needs for a, a universal language to discuss knowledge production from multiple perspectives. Now I strongly suspect that most of the people who listen to these podcasts work with their brains as much as their hands. One way or another, most of you get paid to think, whether you get paid well or paid badly. You create artefacts and events, productions and writings. Whether you call these art or cultural activism or simply things I do. These may become manifest physically, but they always begin in the minds of the originators and they germinate in a mental space during discussions, meetings, planning sessions and workshops. The results of these may eventually get recorded or written down. And unless we're working entirely on our own, these recordings and writings need to be made available in two different senses. They need to exist in a form that other people can buy, borrow, take, steal. And they need to exist in a form that other people can recognize, understand, analyze and use once they have got hold of them. This whole process has, in some ways, been made easier by the advent of networked digital tools. So, for example, I can make all my scripts or all my scores or all my novels available by circulating a Dropbox link, if I want. I can make huge digital files, my Photoshop images, my movies. I can make these available using WeTransfer. But are these tools convivial? To Illich, the key observation to assess the social pathology, as he saw it, are those of the relations of people to their tools and the impact these tools have on the multidimensional balance of life in society. According to him, and I quote again, it is necessary to recognize natural scales and limits. Tools that require time periods or space or energies far beyond the order of corresponding natural scales are dysfunctional. They upset the homeostasis, which constitutes human life. He insists that when tools grow beyond a certain point on this scale, they become a threat to society itself. So the culprit is not exactly the tool itself. 
In human history, whenever a new tool has been forged, at the beginning, it, it is adapted to human life, to society, and it serves it. Dysfunctionality occurs as people make specific choices about the use of this tool, as opposed to other choices that were also available to them. Illich gives us an example of this process, the fact that it's taken almost a century to pass from an era served by motorized vehicles to the era in which society has been reduced to virtual enslavement to the car. So it's not fair to say that Illich has a hostility to innovation or technical change. Rather, he says there is a constant need to ask questions, to check that the tools we're using are working for us rather than trapping us in a prison of thwarted expectations and sullen resignation. He also suggests we need to check the choices we are making in how we use these tools. What do we mean by trust here? Let me give one example. There are thousands of examples available and I've just plucked one from the pages of the newspapers this week. Here we go, long-time virtual world developer, Tim Flipper P.A. Allen, has just got a somewhat unwelcome email from Meta. That's the people who don't like being called Facebook anymore. The letter announces that the company will start collecting anonymized data from Quest 2 and Quest Pro users. Quest 2 and Quest Pro are two of the VR headsets that Meta has been marketing. Going to Meta's privacy page, Tim Allen noticed that what Meta's collecting seems pretty deeply personal aspects of who you are as an individual. For example, if you choose to enable eye tracking in MetaQuest Pro, Facebook process abstracted gaze data to improve your image quality, help you interact with virtual content and animate your avatar's eye and facial movements. Similarly, if you choose to enable natural face expressions, Facebook processes abstracted facial expressions data so that your avatar's expressions look more natural. Meta explains that it's connecting this data for it's collecting this data for things like building better experiences and improving MetaQuest products for everyone. Tim Allen's not reassured. He argues that one look at Meta's record with data over the years shows promises of anonymization are rarely kept. And also saying like in this context implies there'll be other uses for this data beyond quality assurance. And also the policy page mentions third parties who will also be able to access this data. And in any case, anonymized doesn't mean fully anonymous. Even though they can re-identify you from your data trails, they don't need to. Targeted advertising doesn't need to know your name. It just needs to know your precise behaviors, triggers and emotions to be able to target you. Now, I raise this example, firstly, because it, con it concerns the so-called metaverse, this alleged coming soon, cutting edge 
part of our digital lives, about which I have been deeply sceptical for about 15 years. Secondly, because it concerns Facebook, as they prefer not to be called. And thirdly, because it illustrates the inherent conflict of interests between us and them that sits behind the question, why should I bother about what tools I use? So what should we be on the lookout for? I want to suggest that there are three kinds of problems with the tools we use. Firstly, they can act as double agents, serving two masters at the same time, but leaving us uncertain as to which they regard as their primary master. Clue, it's not usually us. Secondly, they can act as black boxes, by which I mean they, they're sealed containers, whether they're physically sealed or, or they're sealed in terms of knowledge, that lock you into systems that may radically change or even vanish overnight. And thirdly, they can act to eat away at your sense of agency and turn your communications into mere content. I want to just briefly go through these one by one. What do I mean about double agents? There's a well-known cliche, which I probably don't have to remind you about, which says, if you didn't pay for the product, then you are the product. In other words, free services need to get paid for somehow, and they usually get paid for by selling parts of you to a third party. Now this isn't new, and we shouldn't pretend it is. This is how commercial radio and commercial television has always worked. You watch The Late Late Show and it costs you nothing. But the host get paid, the people who make the programme, the writers get paid, the directors get paid, the makeup artists get paid. How does that work? The TV company pays someone to find out who is watching The Late Late Show. They bundle this up into a set of demographics and they then offer access to these specific demographics to advertising agencies who in turn show you presentations designed to persuade you to buy something. These demographics are important. They show different kinds of commercials for different kinds of people in the middle of different kinds of shows. The Bold and the Beautiful will contain different advertisements, different kinds of advertisements, different advertisements for different sorts of products, to the commercials in Saturday Night Live, for example. In the world of traditional broadcast media, whether radio or television, this all happens on the surface. We can see it happening. And we, we've learned to know how commercials work. And advertisers have learned to understand that we know this, and they know that we know this, and they factor this into their pitches, which sometimes have a kind of meta-postmodern tinge to them as they know that we know their advertisements and that we're in on the joke, etc. So at some level, almost all television viewers are aware that these commercials are being beamed at them. In the digital world, this is far from obvious. The business of collecting data about demographics happens behind the scenes. And the news that this is happening is buried on the 17th page of a lengthy end user license agreement. 
As we've seen, the technology is monitoring its users without them even knowing if and how they're being monitored, let alone what this monitoring is resulting in. Facebook and Google, just to take two examples, and Amazon, have business models that are entirely dependent on them selling information about your behaviour to third parties. Yes, in Amazon's case, they also sell you books, blankets, toothpaste, whatever. But much of their money is made from the fact that they gather data about these purchases and consolidate this data and then sell this data on in anonymized forms to other people who might then wish to sell you more of the same. You may have noticed this. You go to Amazon, you look at uh, duvets. And then when you go to your browser and start browsing, lo and behold, there's lots of adverts on the web page for duvets or bedding or something similar. You can try this yourself if you don't believe it. Second aspect is the black boxes. What do I mean by black boxes? There's a well-known case in which Tesla increased the range of electric cars during power cuts. This was the first time they admitted they could do this and they did it at, as a good turn for drivers. They were able to download updates to the software remotely and increase the range of all their cars. And then when the power cuts were over, they were able to decrease the range again. And equally, Tesla can block you from using your car remotely if you breach the end-user license agreements. Second example, in 2020, Spectrum, a cable company in America, switched off their home security systems. For years they had marketed a complex home security system, CCTV, burglar alarms, etc., all of which fitted together and enabled you to check it from smartphones. Well, in February 2020, they decided they wished to leave this market, and so they did, leaving large numbers of users with perfectly workable hardware that suddenly had nowhere to report and no means of contacting your app or you and so may as well have been physically broken. So it was a black box that you didn't understand and that worked until suddenly it didn't. For many years, keyless cars have been sold as safe. These are a black box affair. And what do they offer? They offer what a lot of things offer. Marginal convenience. However, it turns out that they can be broken into quite easily. Last Sunday, The Observer wrote an article in which they said that a device disguised as a games console known as an emulator, is being exploited by thieves to steal vehicles within 20 seconds by mimicking the electronic key. It's being particularly targeted at Hyundai and Kia models. Smart equipment of this sort is on sale online for up to £5,000 
allowing thieves to hack into a vehicle's computer system and program themselves a new key. So not only can they steal your car, they can lock you out of your car and make it theirs by programming a key that they have. Police facing a spate of keyless car thefts, says the observer, are closing some cases in less than 24 hours, even when they have CCTV footage available. And the motoring lawyer Nick Freeman has said, the motoring industry has been negligent because they were warned when this new technology was beginning to emerge. It's a catastrophic situation where people cannot insure their cars or face ridiculously high premiums and then lose their cars. Finally, just to note that Google is famous for abandoning apps that it has created. In fact, there's even a website which I will link to that uh, you can go and find a list of abandoned Google apps, a growing list. And they abandon apps, not because they're not successful, I mean, sometimes they abandon apps because they're not successful, but they have a history of abandoning apps even when they're successful in the terms of attracting users and meeting those users' needs. Google used to have one of the most popular newsfeed readers. People all over the world used it, but Google decided to close it one day. Google currently has a very popular podcast service, and it's just announced that it's closing it. So these black box apps, which you don't understand exactly how they work, but you're grateful they exist, exist until they don't. Which is not necessarily the basis of a convivial tool. And the third element that I noted, communication turning into content. A few years ago, everyone was talking about Bitcoin. And then everyone was talking about the blockchain. I know oh, we can do this on the blockchain, we can do that on the blockchain, we could organize holidays on the blockchain, we could run insurance companies on the blockchain, etc. Nowadays, very few people talk about this. Everybody talks about AI. Software companies are talking about AI and introducing it everywhere. When I'm writing, I use a program called Scrivener. And I, I follow the forum for Scrivener because I, I, it's central to what I do. And lo and behold, it's not just software companies are introducing AI, users are demanding it. There have been several threads in the discussion forums about Scrivener saying, when Scrivener going to offer an AI writing assistant? When Scrivener going to offer an AI grammar checker? And the to my great delight, the people that own Scrivener, the people that program Scrivener, have said, we're not, we're not interested in doing that. And I say that because I am also getting bombarded with delights, the de messages extolling the delights of AI in email. I use an email client called EM Client, and it has just introduced AI optionally. I've also checked Blue Mail and uh, several other programs, all of which are getting AI assistance. In some of these, you can give the app a few bullet points, tick a box to say what tone you want, 
tell it who to send it to, and it will then generate an email and send it. Some of these apps also will create helpful summaries of the emails you receive to stop you having to go to the bother, the inconvenience of actually reading the things. So what does this mean? It means if I use this and you use this, it means that I send, I just type a series of bullet points and say informal happy or informal cheerful, press the button and you get an email from me. And at your end, your AI-generated summary turns my email back into a series of bullet points and then, makes, and then may make a decision as to whether or not it's a priority email. Do you spot the problem in this? Whatever I'm doing now, when I'm standing here talking and recording, whatever I'm doing now, I'm doing my best. If you think what I'm saying is nonsense, you have every right to think that. If you reply in some way, saying that you think it's nonsense, then we're communicating. But right now, I'm doing my best, and you're listening to it or not listening to it. And if you are listening to it and you do reply, then as I say, we're communicating. And that's a major part of what humans do. Communicate. And we place value on that communication and we form pictures of people and form alliances or friendship groups with people based on the communications that we share. If we employ AI assistants who generate content for us, then in the process of generating content, human communication is lost. Some apps are beginning to offer the option to train the email app to emulate your style. In other words, you can send it off to read your previous emails and it will figure out the sort of style Owen uses when he writes an email. Even worse than losing communication, I'm now faking communication. I'm sending you an email which can be read as written by me, when in fact all I've done is put a few bullet points down. Meeting on Friday, three agenda items, no more than an hour. Bingo! Off, comes a, off goes a cheery three-paragraph letter and you receive it. Either you receive it and are fooled into thinking I sent it, and in fact I have no direct knowledge of the content of it, or even worse, or maybe not even worse, your AI assistant receives it and turns it into the set of bullet points. And at this point, nobody knows where they stand in regards to communication between people. Now, there's no black and white solution to these issues. It's not yes or no. I'm certainly not suggesting, in, when I'm talking about email, for example, I'm not suggesting we should all go back to fountain pens and postcards and we should all, all write letters to each other, wait three days for, for them to be delivered, and then wait another three days for the reply to be delivered. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying, like Ivan Illich used to say, that we need to look at the unintended effects of the tools we've chosen to use 
and make deliberate choices about the direction in which to develop those tools. We need to try to make sure we can trust those tools and try to make sure that we do not take steps that enable us to enslave ourselves or to undermine our purpose of being human, whatever we feel that is, by setting up tools that act as fakes or act as substitutes. Content is not communication. Now in next month's episode, I'm going to lay out a list of the tools I use and give a list of reasons why I use those. I'm not, I'm definitely not, going to propose some kind of official list, a Michelin guide to digital tools. Nor am I going to propose that using Microsoft Office is sinful and you should all use LibreOffice or any nonsense like that. I'm going to, instead, I'm going to open up about the problems that I've faced and the not always successful steps I've taken to find solutions that work for me. One strand that these solutions all have in common is that they move away from reliance on software as a service, software that offers something for nothing on the web, whether it's Google or even WordPress.com or whatever. And it's worth noting at this point that WordPress announced this week that they will partner with an AI company to sell the content their user, users generate to train AI models. They said, Automatic, the company financing the development of open source WordPress blogging platform, this is according to Tante, who I've discussed previously. He says that Automatic is in talks to sell user-generated data to Midjourney and OpenAI. This only applies to customers and users of the hosted WordPress.com offering and Tumblr, the struggling social media platform they bought a while ago. So if your own instance is hosted somewhere else, then you're in the clear for now. So, bearing that in mind, I've moved steadily in, direction, in the direction of hosting my own blog, posting things there rather than on Facebook, moving away from Twitter to the Fediverse, and adopting a completely federated approach to my own digital tools. I, start to, I started talking about that last time, and I'll look in detail at what I mean by this next month. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and have a good day. Now that you've heard the podcast, please go to the website. There you'll find much more details about topics talked about, links to references, and much more. You can find the website at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.